Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are... However you're listening, hey, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Hey, look, call us on air, get your opera voice heard. What's your opinion on what we're talking about tonight? 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. All right, tonight we're joined live via phone by John Von Rhein, who recently retired as the Chicago Tribune's classical music critic. We go inside the huddle and get his highlights and lowlights from over 40 years of attending and writing about classical music performances in Chicago. And then the OBS team takes off on another summer opera festival road trip. This time we're heading overseas to the granddaddy of them all, the Bayreuth Festival in Germany. Plus 9.40 p.m., it's two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land, plus our team's hot takes on those stories. We've got a great crew tonight. Tobias Wright, great to see you. Great to see you uh, here drinking my Pedialyte. And uh, George. The Patrick Mahomes train is leaving the station in Kansas City, and I just wanted to invite you to hop on. I would rather swallow glass than be a Chiefs fan. Oh, my gosh. Okay, but can I tell you why I'm excited? Sure. Because for the first time since 1984, the Chiefs invested in a draft pick at quarterback in the first round, and he's got a rocket laser arm, and it's amazing. He can throw it over a mountain in Idaho. (laughs) And therefore, they're going to the Super Bowl? Yeah. I already bought my tickets. Matt Cummings, what do you think of that? I think think it it tracks for... uh, for Toby's opinions about sports, which is that, uh, that Kansas is always going to win everything this is, this is because you guys live together. That's why Weston Williams say it ain't so. Uh, it ain't so, George. It ain't so. They have, <sighs> they have football down in uh, Alabama? They do, but it's only college football. Roll Tide. You know, that's the only sporting event I'm obligated to know about as a native Alabamian. So uh, uh, I will be updating you once, you know, it actually happens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're almost there. School's starting up again all over the country. I'm excited. I'm pumped. Football Let's talk time. some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Early in October of 1977, a 32-year-old former violin student and English major from Southern California had his first review published in the Chicago Tribune as the paper's classical music critic. Forty years and eight months later, John Von Rhein has retired from a post that has afforded him an aisle view of one of the richest, most important cultural arenas in the nation. And he joins us now on Opera Box Score live via phone. Mr. Von Rhein, thank you so much for being on the show. You're very welcome, George. It's good to be here. Great to be here with you and with the rest of my boys. I got to ask, did you write those final articles with a tear in your eye? Uh, It was a bittersweet uh, column to have to write. I'll tell you, it took me longer than just about any other piece I've written for the Tribune in 40 years. Uh, because there was just so much to crunch, you know, um, you know what to leave out, what to include, and you could only do a, a smattering of reactions. But sure, I'm going to miss it a, a tremendous amount. I tell people I'm sort of in um, the decompressing mode right now. I'm um, although I left the Tribune, I'm continuing to do some freelance uh, writing, just a little more selectively, and doing the kinds of pieces that I I want rather than what uh, the editors always want. 
Absolutely. Uh, this is Matt here. I I'm wondering if hey, you Matt. Can, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how, uh, as a critic, you developed a vocabulary to talk about music that was uh, descriptive and meaningful. That you know didn't have too much jargon or wasn't what and wasn't so vague, uh, in a way that your reviews did provide insight into the performances that you saw. Well, it sure helped to be a dual major at UCLA as both an English major and a violin and music history major. So. I combined the skills of one discipline with the other. Um, I don't think anybody should be in a position like I had at the Tribune unless they've had some performing experience and some musical um, in-depth background. But it is a writing job, and um, the English major, all the reading I did and the writing, of course, uh, all helped refine my skills. So um, I don't I think very few of us actually set out to become music critics. Uh, we, we just kind of fall into it, and I just happened to fall into it at a very lucky time, I think, for arts criticism in general in America when there were papers and outlets for us to, to write. I'm not sure anybody coming up now in the field is going to find nearly the number of openings and certainly... Uh, the kinds of editors who helped get me my start. Um, it's it's a different ball game altogether now, and we'd need a separate program to go into that. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different world now, I think, than when you started. This is Weston, by the way. Um, not to brag, but I have I, I did uh, work for a newspaper for a few months, and I did a little bit of a very tiny bit of classical music criticism, mm -hmm. so a little little different um, than I think when you... Uh, Mr. Von Ryan is unimpressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Well, uh, um, I mean, I'll, I'll send you some of my articles. My be great. sympathies are out for anybody, <laughs> let's put it that way, who is trying to get a foothold in what is pretty much a shrunken profession right now. Uh, they don't seem to... I mean, I'm... I'm not knocking my bosses. They're they're keeping up the scrutiny on the Chicago art scene, and God bless them for that. But other newspapers and other outlets just don't seem to want classical music as part of the mix, like it was assumed classical music was when I started in '77. And uh, now bean counters are running the show, and uh, you mm. and I know that classical music doesn't get the digital clicks that sports and TV and movies do. And but it never did. It's just now that everything seems to be measured by that, and um, I don't think that's right. There's a very demanding, discerning um, reading public out there that wants to hear about what's going on, and they want informed opinion about what's going on. On that note, uh, how much do you think it's the uh, the the critic's role to? inform and educate and promote the artistic endeavors of the city rather than, you know, just pure criticism. Uh, how do you uh, kind of strike that balance between those objectives? Um, well, I tried to do that very um, conscientiously in, over these years. Um, it, it wasn't always ideal. I'll be very honest with you. In the old days, uh, when I started out, when the newspapers could afford to main, maintain full staffs of arts writers and critics, there were clear lines of demarcation between those who wrote the advance for a given arts event and those who actually reviewed that event. Well, now staffs have have shrunk, and the, the distinction has blurred, I think, between quote-unquote promotion and reviewing. Mm. And more than a few times, i got to say, I found myself duty-bound as an honest critic to knock a performance or an opera production that I had um, advanced a couple of days before. I don't think uh, that's an ideal situation, um, that we are forced to do both, and I'd like to think that I was able to maintain that distinction, but um, it's, 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 it's not easy. I mean, what can I say? There's, there's such a a thing as a kind of civic-minded arts writer, and I think um, all of us at the Tribune were that. But then we had to kind of put on another hat when it came to reviewing, because people wanted an honest assessment of what went on. I mean, a case in point was I sat down in the roundtable discussion of the new Faust production at mm -hmm. Zurich, the Kevin Newberry production, mm -hmm. which it turns out I pretty much hated. 
uh, when I actually saw it, despite all the background that I got and all that, I had to be honest and I had to knock it um, because right. I didn't think I was doing anybody a, a service by, you know, saying sweet nothings about a show that failed to measure up to the artwork itself. I mean, th- obviously, this is gonna, uh, going to continue to be a difficult question over the next several sure. years and probably decades. But uh, I feel like Hopefully, anyway. I-, I feel like a lot of people uh, really kind of look at this and they just have this sort of pessimistic viewpoint. Do you, do you have any um, uh, glimmers of hope, any insights that you might offer to those sort of following in your footsteps? Well, that's that's an excellent question. I, I think. As um, criticism has proliferated more and more on the Internet and in blogs and in outlets that I hope in my retirement to pursue a little bit more, I hope that that when now that that is proliferating so well that there is room for all kinds of writing whether it's advances, whether it's interviews, whether it's news stories, obituaries, and, of course, solid, informed criticism. So um, I look to the Internet as, as a possible means of salvation there, for want of a better term. I don't know if print will even be around when it comes to serious arts criticism much longer. Some editors at major newspapers have already given up on print and have concentrated all their resources on digital. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're talking with recently retired Chicago Tribune classical music critic John Von Rhein. Mr. Von Rhein, in the uh, pair of farewell articles that you wrote for the Tribune, which are linked mm-hmm. on our website, operaboxscore.com, you wrote, I have qualms about impending cutbacks in the number of Lyric Opera of Chicago performances and next season's ratio of war horses to more unusual fare. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you say more about what those qualms were, and, and how, what do you see the direction of that company over the next years? Well, I, I don't want this to become a trend. I mean, next season, they're cutting back by four performances from 61, I believe, to 57. Um, Siegfried, which is the most difficult sell of the Wagner Ring operas, will have only four performances. And... Um, so I, I just don't want this to become a kind of template for future seasons. Um, um, what else did you want to know? Sorry. Well, and so um, we have these impending cutbacks. Yeah. Th- that's in the context of uh, the history of Lyric. When you look even further back to uh, artist Cranach rescuing the company from bankruptcy mm-hmm. and setting up some fiscal responsibility under Bill Mason and now um, Anthony Freud? Well, fiscal responsibility is becoming ever more a mantra, not just at Lyric, but uh, CSO and uh, everywhere else uh, with the big money institutions. Um, I want Lyric, obviously, to be number one, an international um, pace setter for, um, for opera. Um, not just in America, but around the world. I want us to attract the best directors, designers, uh, conductors, singers. Um, I think Anthony Freud is doing a good job in some areas, maybe could be improved in others, namely some of the stage directors that he has brought in over these last several years um, have not panned out terribly successfully he's i we know what he's doing because the met is doing much the same same thing they're looking toward the realms of legitimate theater and broadway for new directorial ideas well sometimes that works sometimes it doesn't it depends a lot on how well versed in the score the directors are and uh we've had a couple of productions that I've found fault with. Uh, the Singing and Dancing Carmen was one. Uh, unspeakably <laughs> Ugly Tosca uh, was another. Um, that same John Caird who gave us that Ugly Tosca also did a Parzival, which I thought failed to come to grips with the work. So, okay, I'm 
I'm all for enlarging the roster, and I think we've done a very good job when it comes to conductors. Um, we're missing out on some major singers that mm-hmm. the Met gets regularly, like Anna Netrebko, like Jonas Kaufmann. Uh, Netrebko will be back here next year, but not in the staged opera, but in a concert with orchestra. So those are kind of scattered shots, but you see what I'm getting at. Um, Anthony, I think, is doing overall a good job. He's casting more what I would call ensemble opera rather than star opera. And some ensemble casts look extremely good. Look at the Aria Dante of Handel that they have next season. Um, That's got uh, quite a lineup. So uh, we'll see. But but you, you mentioned artist Kranich, and there was artistic vision that I would hope that would be emulated into Lyric's future. I mean, look at the Toward the 21st Century initiative that brought us major European 20th century and American operas. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, Kranich had a marvelous gift for keeping one eye on the budget, rigorously on the budget, while keeping the other on a very enlightened artistic uh, agenda. And I could only want that for any company, let alone uh, just Lyric Opera. Absolutely. Mr. Von Ryan, this is Tobias Wright. So kind of want to change the topic here a little bit and hear just a little bit of some of your experiences. Um, and regarding some of the smaller companies uh, and ensembles in the city that don't have the stature, clout, or identity of the Symphony Orchestra, Lyric, uh, Chicago mm-hmm. Opera Theater, or Ravinia, I'm curious, were there ever nights that you reluctantly entered a theater, unsure of or uninspired by the evening ahead of you, uh, and then you found yourself completely engaged and moved by a performance of some of the smaller companies, perhaps even to the point where you were um, forgetful of the fact that you were there as a critic and as a journalist? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty hard to turn off uh, the latter two functions. He is a consummate professional. I wouldn't say reluctantly. I always go into the smaller, what, quote-unquote, off-loop operatic experiences very eagerly because I, uh, number one, I, I want to... I want to bring to I wanted to bring to the Tribune readers' attention uh, the wealth of uh, activity that's been growing, uh, particularly over the last decade or so. And um, George's company, I will say, it was is one of them that has made my job uh, quite a pleasure, um, bringing us repertoire of a smaller nature, of a chamber nature that we need to hear, that certainly complements what the big boys are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while giving younger singers a promise of that kind of springboard that they need for their careers, that they're not going to get any other way. So, yeah, I've, been, I've gone in eager, and I've come out even more eager, I, <laughs> I would say, um, with some. It doesn't mean that everything has worked out fine. I mean, budget considerations and all that, of course, uh, have a, a role to play, like like with everybody, but um, the it's it's the alternative spirit and um, new staging ideas, um, new presentation ideas in terms of design that um, I looked for and I was very pleased when I found. Mr. Van Ryn, when you look at the Chicago classical music audience as a whole and if you had to generalize grossly i mean what do they get right what did they miss and how do you want to see this audience here in chicago develop over the coming years well i think chicago classical music audiences uh, have become more sophisticated more discerning in their tastes less balkanized maybe in <laughs> their and by that i simply mean that people seem to be more willing to explore a greater diversity of performance options in classical than they once were when I came here, when they were the, the audiences were pretty stratified, let me tell you. Um, for sure, this has had a lot to do with the simple fact that there's more of every type of classical music in the area than there was 40 years ago. More symphonic music and opera, chamber music, choral music, early music, new music. Uh, what I do worry about is 
whether the existing audiences and support mechanisms can sustain this much musical activity, let alone um, adjust to further growth going down the line, given the uncertainties of the arts economy and all that. But I don't think the audiences are missing anything. They've been very sharp. I, I know that from the tenor and content of the emails and letters and phone calls that I've gotten over the years. What I do think is, is sorely lacking is, is the, um, the backing of our elected officials. Our city, local, state government, and federal government, particularly, uh, commitment to culture. Um, and in your article, you have this sentence which says, quote, The best advocacy for the arts is to treat the arts as central to a city's identity, not as bread and circuses. What exactly did you mean by that, by bread and circuses? Well, then, then by bread and circuses, uh, simply... The arts are not just entertainment. Yes, they can be entertaining, but they're part of a broad cultural fabric that is part of who we are as a civilized society. Um, that's what the politicians don't seem to get. That's what a certain major political party never seems to get every time, uh, particularly after a major presidential election. It votes to cut off funding altogether for the national endowment for the arts and humanities. Now, when you realize that the budget for those federal agencies is infinitesimal mm -hmm. compared to what the billions that would be required to build the, the wall in the southwest border of the U.S., <laughs> for example, I mean, it, we shouldn't be even having this kind of uh, national discussion. Um, fortunately, cooler heads prevail, and they realize that um, without the priming of the pump that the National Endowment provides, um, local activity is, is going to suffer, and local art support is going to suffer, uh, because they look to the national agency, obviously, for that. So um, a roundabout answer to your question, but I don't think the onus should be on audiences. They're fine. Um, I'm, I'm worried about support, and and particularly political support of the arts. It's, it's phenomenal to me that a generation of classical music criticism here in Chicago really has been defined by your writing and, and by your words. John Von Rhein was the classical music critic for over 40 years at the Chicago Tribune. He's retired from the paper, but he's still an active critic. And Mr. Von Rhein, I mean that as a compliment, <laughs> of course. Thank you so much for being on our show this evening. Well, thank you very much for having me, George. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll see you around town, I hope. Yes, indeed. The OBS Summer Opera Festival road trip continues and heads overseas. That's next, only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at OperaBoxScore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score.
It's Upper Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist in studio live with Tobias Wright. I'm here. Matt Cummings. That's me. Weston Williams. And me, I'm also here. Oliver Camacho is not here. Stuck uh, on a plane in Peoria nerd. or something. He's not a nerd. He's just a victim of, of bad, of, of bad yeah, weather. Bad weather here in uh, Very, Chicago. How's life with you, Matt, by the way? You've, have you been the victim of bad weather? I have not been the victim of bad weather because my summer has been full of farmer's markets, oh. including uh, the Rogers Park Farmer's Market that I hit up last week and then baked some wonderful zucchini bread with my findings. Look at you go. I know, domestic <laughs> god over here. That's what I have to say. It's the secret out. Does Do our listeners know that Matt and I are roommates? And I, think that we, I, cons- I think we talked about it tonight. I, cons- <laughs> I consumed this zucchini bread and it was delicious. <laughs> but I cooked him dinner last night. So yeah. Okay. It you, opened you in 1876 with the first ever complete production of The Ring Cycle. And since then, its repertoire has focused solely on the works of its founder, composer Richard Wagner. It's the granddaddy of them all. It's the Bayreuth Festival, of course. Weston. What is special to you about this festival? Well, uh, first of all, George, it's Wagner. And, you know, I like to party to Wagner all the time. I do. I love it. Hmm. Uh, uh, <laughs> Didn't know this about oh, you, Weston. I, I mean, I, I like to surprise everyone on the show every now and again. But uh, I should say also, in addition to it opening in 1876 uh, with the first complete ring cycle, that was actually 1876. The anniversary of that was this past week. It was the 13th through the 20th, I believe. Um, it was originally going to be through the 19th, but the tenor had a cold on the last day, so they had to bump it a day. Uh, Today was when the fat lady sang yeah, for the very first did time yes. in Bayreuth. Yes. <laughs> that, was, that was dreadful. Okay, okay. I can't help so, it that that's what the, the ring cycle is, what that quote is about. You heard it here first, Yeah, people. it is. I mean, uh, I don't think anybody heard it here first. Sorry, go on, Weston. Bayreuth is a big thing in opera history. I mean, the, the whole stereotype, as you said, of the fat lady singing with the horns on her head, that comes directly from the Bayreuth production uh, in the 1870s. Uh, the very reason we think Vikings have have horns is because of Bayreuth. Um, but it's not just historically significant because of that. It's notable in a number of respects. Uh, first of all, the stage itself um, was is um, uh, many sources suggest it's the largest freestanding timber structure ever constructed. I found some things disputing that maybe, but it is pretty big. Um, and, but because it's made of wood and because of its cone-shaped orchestra pit underneath the, shea, uh, the, underneath the stage, rather, it creates some of the best acoustics the mid to late 19th century had to offer. It has a 1.55 second reverberation time and various acoustic reflectors around the uh, the stage that allow the orchestra to basically you know, be maximum Wagner loud while still letting the singer be heard, which is insane to me. The, the acoustics are phenomenal. Exactly, and you, you cannot overemphasize the importance of the move that Wagner had of putting the orchestra underneath the pit, right? Because say in, in Mozart's time in the late 18th century, I mean the orchestra was was downstage of the of the proscenium, of course, but virtually at the same level or, or slightly beneath the pit level, but but completely exposed. Yeah. All of those instrumentalists, all of their music, their bows, their instruments, the lighting. As a matter of fact, uh, the uh, original opera house that Wagner considered in Bayreuth uh, is a big, beautiful Baroque theater, and it has an entirely exposed o- orchestra pit, uh, even more than one would expect in even Mozart's era. Um, but it's uh, it, but because of that, I think a lot of Bayreuth was sort of designed as sort of the anti-Baroque opera house. For example, there's continental seating, which means there's no boxes. Everyone has equal looking at the stage. There's no place for the rich people to sit. It's always Everyone's the same status. Well, every, everybody's a rich person there. It, yeah, ex- everyone. That, <laughs> yeah, it does. It does cost a little bit. Um, however, you know, it, it is. It was pretty revolutionary for the time, particularly in uh, sort of the large scale opera houses. And there's also all sorts of like little tricks, like a double proscenium to make uh, everything appear farther away. As a matter of fact, um, Bayreuth was one of the first, if not the first. Uh, not just opera house, but theater to turn off the lights in the house during a production. Uh, and it just blows my mind that that was 
almost certainly the origin of something we now do in pretty much every theater uh, to this day. Movie movie theaters, uh, straight plays, operas. It's uh, it kind of started here, um, and well, that's. I mean, you know, prior to this, opera was a social experience. It was a social gathering for, exactly. for the most part, and it yeah. was. That's why we have encores, is because oftentimes. You know, people, they were talking through People it. were talking through it, and they're like, wait, 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 I think I like that. Do it again. <laughs> and Wagner was like, no. No, you're gonna, no. You're going to listen now. Wagner wanted the focus pointed at the stage. There was nothing to distract you. The, at most, you would see is a little flip of a baton occasionally That's as so he's conducting. so out of character for him. <laughs> he was, I mean. To be a control freak all about the details was, of his own Toby, operas. he was a bat flipper. Oh, well, he was a bat flip. <laughs> Everybody needs to... A good bat flip is necessary, and a great baton flip is even more necessary. Oh, man. Why but, are people so obsessive about it, though? Well, do you okay. Think, the, I think the big selling point of the Bayreuth Festival is that it is just Wagner's operas in the place where he wanted them to be played. And this isn't even like, you know, all op- Wagner operas. This is the Wagner canon. This is uh, Flying Dutchman forward. You're not going to see Rinzi. You're not going to see Die Fein. You're not going to see Das Liebesverbot. You're going to see the good stuff um, as Wagner interpreted. Only the Wagneriest Wagner. Yeah, and it was, it was built especially for the ring cycle, but in many ways, I think it could be argued that the acoustics were designed uh, around Wagner's music. And certainly from the third act of Siegfried on Wagner composed all of his uh, writing with the acoustics of Bayreuth and the stage capabilities of Bayreuth in mind. So as like a period practice kind of person, it's kind of the ideal place. Because how many times do you do you get to see uh, an opera or any musical performance in the exact conditions that the uh, composer wanted? It's extraordinarily rare. And as a result, it's a big sort of draw for Wagnerians around the world. Um, and uh, with that comes uh, some problems when one of the Wagnerians is Adolf Hitler. Whoops. Um, so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not just the onstage drama, it's the offstage drama. Uh, so, after Wagner died, um, uh, his widow Cosima took over, and then uh, her son, uh, their son rather, Siegfried, because Wagner is very predictable in naming his children, um, and, um, and Siegfried married uh, Winifred, of Wagner and uh, Winif- well, Siegfried and Cosima, you know, they were the sons, uh, the son and, uh, wi- uh, and widow mother. of, uh, of <laughs> sorry, I'm getting the incest. I'm mixing up Wagner's works and the actual people. Um, no, uh, Cosima was the widow uh, of Wagner. Uh, anyway, so Siegfried uh, and Cosima had some anti-Semitic leadings like their, uh, like their, husband and father respectively but uh, Winifred was a full out friend of Adolf Hitler um, and things got a little bit nasty with that because uh, Winifred was in charge until you know up up through the war essentially Um, and as a result um, not just Bayreuth but Wagner's reputation was heavily tarnished by this association with Hitler and the Nazis um, and many would argue Justly so. Um, I was going to say, perhaps they were tarnished because of his own anti-Semitism. Uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there is certainly, uh, there, there is, yeah, it, he is. There's an even if you're beyond the surface level, it, it, there is a huge current of German nationalism that right. runs through these operas. Absolutely, especially and, in Meistersinger, uh, particularly, and, and you have you have uh, the villains that are often these Jewish stereotypes, or at least they're interpreted to be commonly as uh, like Beckmesser and Beckmesser. even uh, 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 the guy so, in Parseval, whatever it, so it is. It just makes it, it makes it kind of hard, in my opinion, to argue that it's all you know that it's all optics. That it's just that right. Hitler happened to like Wagner's music because right. it's not just a surface level connection. Yeah, it's it, there, there's there a were, lot there. There's a lot of there there. There were ideals that were shared that were. Yes, very much grief. so. But as a result, interestingly. Um, uh, after the war, um, you have the uh, the brothers Wieland and Wolfgang Wagner, who were uh, in charge for a while. And Wieland was sort of the impetus behind this. Uh, they they you know realized this that so this these are Wagner, the composer's great grandsons, just grand- no grandsons. grandsons. I'm sorry, grandsons. grandsons. Um, and they uh, they realized that the reputation of Wagner's opera and the festival was definitely not in a good place uh, compared to the pre-war years. 
Uh, and so in order to counteract that, they threw out all the naturalistic aspects of the original productions. Everything that, you know, was used uh, in, in uh, Hitler's time to uh, these big naturalistic, beautiful German landscapes that, that Hitler would invite soldiers to to watch Meisterzinger. Um, all of that was thrown out in favor of these sort of minimalist, uh, stark, symbolic uh, uh, stagings. Uh, and this is sort of the birth of Regietheater which means director's theater, which is a movement that still exists, particularly in Germany, where... Oh, it's bigger than ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, I love me some Reggie Theater, let me tell you. But uh, it's, you'll, it'll often be marked by just, you know, uh, radical jumps in time and setting. Uh, things get a lot more symbolic. Uh, sex is often <laughs> put towards the front. It's, it's one of those... Uh, it's the kind of productions your, your grandma complains about when you take her to see the ring cycle. You know, you know that common thing that happens to everybody. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, with, with, with their grandma... Cosima Wagner, would she have complained? I think she would have, actually. As a matter of fact, there was a quote I came across uh, in the early days, uh, I believe in the 1890s, one of the first big changes uh, was when um, Wagner's original um, sets, uh, Richard Wagner, I should say, um, when they started to break down, um, um, there was a big hullabaloo about how they were going to uh, replace them because they didn't want... They wanted to preserve Wagner's original vision, and so uh, and so Siegfried asked uh, Cosima um, what she thought, and she's like, "Well, what would how would Papa have done it?" it she <laughs> was pretty famously fanatical about protecting yes, the legacy right. of the festival, and, like the fact that until one of only two women to direct there as well. Yes, yes, I believe so. The other being uh, Katerina Wagner, who is the composer's great granddaughter. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR eighty nine point three FM. Talking about the Bayreuther Festspiele, the Bayreuth Festival uh, in Bayreuth, Germany, dedicated to the works of Richard Wagner. Matt, so how does all of this history that Weston has set up, uh, how does it intersect directly with what we're trying to tackle in opera today? Yeah, it's a pretty interesting case because there's a lot happening in this in this you know century and a half retrospective of Bayreuth that is kind of a microcosm of all the issues in the opera world that we've been talking about over the last two years and, and will continue to <laughs> talk can, about forever yeah. ad, ad infinitum. Uh, you know, it's a you're talking about a festival that was founded on the basis of hero worship and ego in order to present these operas as museum pieces. <laughs> and, you know, only it's only been 40, 50 years since people realized that that wasn't sustainable and had to get a little bit innovative. And then only now, recently, uh, as, since, since the 60s or so, are we starting to confront the history of, you know, racism and exclusion that happened. Uh, the, the clip that opened this segment was Grace Bunbury singing Venus and Tannhäuser at, mm. at, at the Bayreuth Festspiel in uh, 1961 or 1962. And that was a huge scandal to have uh, an African-American singer at sing singing on the stage of Bayreuth around the same time that, you know, Leontine Price and uh, Robert McFerrin were baking and others were, were breaking down those barriers over here. Uh, and, and even when you're confronting that history, there there lingering issues remain, as, as Toby, you just brought up recently, talking about how only two female directors have ever worked. And they were direct descendants of Wagner's. And no yeah. women have ever conducted an no, opera there. Yeah. And I mean, that's still problematic. And you talked about, you know, 40 to 50 years ago, they started to realize that they needed to make these change. And we always talk about opera being reactionary and moving at a glacial pace. Well, Bayreuth needs to obviously get with the times as well, you know. And they just had their first Jewish director um, for this season and then their first American director as well. And it was interesting, those performances, Alex Ross talked about this in The New Yorker, um, talk about confronting some of the issues. They put them plainly in sight and no longer hid uh, some of the anti-Semitism. They made it, they, they said, this is what it is and this is how we're going to costume these people. This is how we're going to make this production and they're not going to hide the fact that that's what it was and you're going to have to be uncomfortable with it because that's what Wagner wrote. Well, the problem is that people mix up the place and the surroundings and the edifice with the art that happens in it, right? So, like, it's hallowed ground for anybody who's in the opera business. I mean, God, I would... I would kill to be able to work there, but even yeah. just to go there. <laughs> there was one year I tried to get tickets. I mean, the, the famous stories, of course, is that there was these waiting lists. This is pre-internet era. And you would be on a waiting list for like six, eight, ten years before you got your shot of tickets. Not dissimilar, I might add, 
from the Bears or from or the, like the, from Green the, Bay, the Green Bay Packers from the pack. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, of course, you are able to to buy online. There was a couple years ago, I uh, was like online, had the computer open, was ready to like get my tickets, and it's all done in real time, and you could see just like seats being snapped up, and literally. Every show was sold out in like five minutes. Somehow I managed to get tickets and was like, what am I thinking? There's no way I'm going to be able to go to this. <laughs> so I let them go. I just like, I just know that it's possible, I guess, at this point. So you have like the fanaticism of the edifice. The The art should be as provocative though, right? Like yeah. why should the art be traditional and this is this is where the dichotomy is is that people go for the tradition outside but inside my personal opinion they should not be getting that tradition yeah i think the a lot of the productions particularly more recent productions uh, uh even i think there was back in the 70s there was a radical leftist production that caused uh riots i believe it was of um tannhäuser i can't remember uh, i might get corrected on that later um but it, there, there is genuinely good stuff happening yeah. in there. It's just so, uh, it's just such a, a, a pilgrimage. I mean, Wagner's music is so complicated because it is genuinely incredibly well-written, incredibly historically significant music, but you can't get beyond sort of Wagner himself, his massive ego, his anti-Semitism. Nor should you, I would argue. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's it's one of those things where you should confront it. That's why I think the beauty of Regitheater stemming from Bayreuth is so appropriate, because Regitheater is always so confrontational of the own works that it's putting on in a way that a lot of theater movements uh, are not. And I think that that kind of thing is where Bayreuth can be artistically saved and that might be something that should spread to other opera companies in the world as well. If you are at the Bayreuth Festival, if you were there this season, you should definitely let us know. You can tweet us at Opera Box Score. If you've got a pick, send us that pick as well. We'll be sure to post it on our website, operaboxscore.com. Hey, could you use opera to, say, punish your neighbors? You bet. That's next on America's Talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendantin Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines and opera news from the past week. Thanks to Cambridge University senior lecturer in music David Trippett's dogged determination to translate and decipher a neglected sketchbook of a composition by Franz Liszt, the work, it's the first act of an Italian opera called Sadanapolo, written almost 170 years ago, is having life breathed into it for the first time. It premiered last night with the Staatskapelle Weimar Orchestra. Composer Henry Malacone was a young man for 40 years ago when the Central City Opera Company in Colorado commissioned him to write something short, something his younger singers could cut their teeth on. Quote, to our great shock, it caught on like wildfire, Malacone says today. No exact count to how many times the face on the barroom floor has been performed way above 700, I'd guess. 
A woman in Slovakia started playing opera at a loud volume to drown out the sound of a neighbor's barking dog and then continued blasting the music at all hours of the day for 16 years, neighbors say. She's finally been arrested and faces charges of harassment and malicious persecution, the BBC reports. Neighbors say she constantly played a four-minute aria from Giuseppe Verdi's La Travia. <laughs> La Traviata, as performed by Placido Domingo. Exit stage right, Aretha Franklin, who died on Thursday at 76. One of her greatest and most unusual performances was when she filled in at the 11th hour for an ailing Luciano Pavarotti at the 1998 Grammys when she sang Nessun Dorma from Puccini's opera Turndot. And on this day, August 20th, the pres- it's the premiere of Rossini's Le Conte Henri in Paris in 1828. That is your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Yo, 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 Opera Box Score. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM, the number in the studio, 847-866-WNUR. Call us, let us know what you're thinking about this week's opera headlines, 847-866-9687. Okay, everyone. What's going on in your life, Weston? Who is ready for fall? Because I am. I am done with the heat right now. I can get behind that, Weston. Yeah, yeah, I mean... I, I walked into the store the other day and I saw pumpkin, pumpkin spice, spice <laughs> and I was transported. I was so ready. And then I walked outside and it was 90 it's, degrees and humid. It, I just have to, like, if I could buy peaches that are that taste like peaches at the same time that I was wearing a sweater, that would be like the perfect day <laughs> for me. Do, is this going back to your farmer's market thing, Matt? Uh I, yes. I'm just a recent convert. Okay. But, <laughs> Why don't you go to a farmer's market radio make show, some, dude, uh, at this point? <laughs> make some zucchini, uh, pumpkin spice zucchini bread. That's going to be the good stuff. Uh, Toby, the the list is long of... I see what did, you did there, George. Did you like that? Was that too much of a dad joke? It was a you? lot of a dad joke. Okay. So but as anyway. a lover of dad jokes and dads. What? <laughs> anyway, so... You're, you're, now you're on my <laughs> list. You're on mine too. Um, okay, so I really actually love the the discovery and then the performance of this list. And admittedly, it's because uh, as a performer, I had an opportunity to do something that was relatively similar. Uh, obviously, it wasn't Franz Liszt, um, but I was part of a documentary film in which a filmmaker found a manuscript for a long lost opera that his grandfather wrote 80 years ago. Um, and then I was part of bringing that together. And I was dumbfounded at the amount of work and research uh, that was involved to put something together and then perform it publicly that literally could have gone undiscovered and never heard. And in the case of Liszt, I mean, if you know classical music, you know that that is some of the most lush, gorgeous music that ever... Difficult. And difficult, right, exactly, <laughs> that's ever existed. Um, and so I, I think this is fantastic. I know that there's some criticism with uh, some of the research and that there are gaps in perhaps some of the manuscript and maybe it's not a complete show, um, but I would, I would argue that I, I would rather hear what little there is than absolutely. Yeah, I, sh- I, I I hear what you're saying. For me, even even at their best, un, like unfinished pieces like that, just leave are, you wanting. Well, they're just kind of bittersweet because you're left listening, wondering what that what else they would have added. You know, the end of sure, but the, like the end of Turandot famously like doesn't work at all because right. you're just like here's where he died. Big cor- big choral finale. Everything's great. Question mark. Right. <laughs> I feel like Puccini would have done that, though. I mean, he would have done a little bit better. But if you, if, uh, I, I believe that there it has been scholarship where you, if you look at his diaries, he was like trying to totally break new ground in the duet mm. between Turandot and Kalaf that was coming up. Mm-hmm. And as much as I like, you know, the riddle scene, I, I'm left wondering what was left. You know, what yeah. was coming next? Yeah. And there's no way to fix that. But problem. in the case of lists, it's, it's an example of his music that we don't really otherwise have a glimpse into, and we don't... He he didn't do any other operas, did he? No. No. Yeah. No, and this is in Italian, a language that he wasn't totally proficient on. uh, (laughs) That could make for interesting opera right there. He did write vocal music. He wrote wrote uh, choral music and songs. Go ahead, George. Do you think Face on the Barroom Floor should have been left unfinished? 
Um, no comment. <laughs> I, I might have like I might like it better if it were by list. I just yeah I, yeah I, yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to put that. It's not my favorite piece of music. You know, here's here's the thing though is is over at Central City, they love the piece because it was written at Central City. It's done every about year Central on their Friday. It's about Central City. It takes place in a in the bar room in like copper mine springs or whatever have you ever been to central city uh, no no it I, is I, the strangest it's middle of nowhere it's awesome beautiful yeah, of course of course it's right there's a whole bunch of casinos there i think yeah it's right very there. haunted out in that part of colorado like all of those old mining towns Spooky. that are yeah oh ghost towns yeah. definitely the p- the piece itself is is dramatically trite and musically uninteresting but <laughs> i Anyway, I, it's, wow, it has tell been us how done. you really feel, George. It has, although, get this, operabase.com does not have a single performance of it listed um, in from last year over the next three You're gonna years. You're going to have to write a letter to the editor, George. Well, I'm just questioning, like, would it ever be done overseas? <sighs> it like, uh, would has any- it? So wait, you're telling me there's not a scheduled performance of it in the next three years? Clearly that's not right because Central City's listing should Maybe be on Opera Base. That's strange. I, I thought that was weird. Almost as weird as this woman in Slovakia. <laughs> this woman is everything I aspire to be in you're 30 already, years. You're already a good way yeah. there, I gotta say. But I have to say, I, I think her choice of uh, La, Travia, <laughs> La Traviata for 16 de, years de is a little bit... Spiriti. My my question for you guys is, what would you blast for 16 straight years from an opera? Not that art. <laughs> That's not even the part of Traviata that I would blast for 16 straight years. Well, yeah. like, was she trying to inflict pain? I'm, because well, I wonder, oh, I wonder if it was it, that Domingo Traviata movie. Do you know what I'm talking about? Has anybody was. ever seen that movie? Seen no. that. Do you know what the I'm talking Zeparelli about? The Zeparelli one? Is it a Zeparelli I, film? I think so. Because like when he sings the, when he does this particular moment, he's like in a field leaning against a tree, and there's like a brook in the <laughs> <Good> background. <grief. laughs> I didn't even think about that being a possibility. What the BBC report says is that she started it at a loud volume to drown out the neighbor's barking dog. So to answer your question, Weston, it's like, well, what, what would drown out the sound I mean, of animal. I mean, it could be rock I mean, you, you got have to you got to find like a balance between something I you like, like and something that opera. is loud. And I I, I, w- I thought like, what would I have picked? Ba, 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 and so ba, 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 I went into my most played songs I'm on iTunes. I'm wondering if they're going to be Wagner. And yeah, well, all, all five of my top played songs are all Wagner. Sure. So. Hot sure. takes sure. from Matt Cummings <laughs> over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Coming what, to you live wait, from what is, like number What five. is number one? Oh, Eviga Nacht, Susa Nacht. From Tristan, you know the little duet before mm-hmm. things go. The little duet. <laughs> it's like thirty-seven minutes. Uh, yeah, I, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Wagner all the George, way. George, what would you play? Well, I'm I'm thinking like I know Stravinsky. Oh, that's good. That's Probably. a good choice. Well, because it has to be kind of got to be something you enjoy a little bit, right? But first, I guess if you're listening through it, yeah, in your own place. Toby, I play your oh. recording of that Traviata aria. Every day, my, oh, yeah, my, that's my own choice. personal what? recording, the one of you singing. Ah, great! Yeah, <laughs> I too would do That'll that. That'll scare the dog. Pain. I'm so glad you guys are in the other studio from us, <laughs> right now. Let's 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 lay down a little bit of R E S P E C T here. Mm. Aretha Franklin died on Thursday at 76. The funeral's on Friday, by the way. In and De- uh, sorry, two Fridays from now in Detroit. I'm actually going to be in the area. I'm very oh, really? tempted to go to the funeral. I think you should. Is yeah. it is it public? Well, I I don't know. I, I, George, you should absolutely. There's going to be something public going on in the yeah, city of Detroit. I'm sure there. I'm sure there is. Let's let's listen to this clip of. Um, Wait, before we start, Aretha can Frank I just say one thing Dorma. to listen to? Sure. So, it's important. <laughs> Aretha Franklin is such an important American figure. She's an important black figure. She's an important woman figure. Uh, her opera singing is not great, and she breathes in horrible places. <laughs> Dude, wow. Oh, okay. Okay. Let, we'll take a listen, and then we'll, <laughs> and then we'll see what we can talk about here. Yeah. 
And if you guys believe the uh, the Daily Beast article that they wrote about this performance, apparently she did this with absolutely no rehearsal after having listened to a cassette tape of their dress <laughs> oh, rehearsal. All right, well, now I like feel like two an or three times. <laughs> yeah, Toby. What have you done today, Toby? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's something outside of her genre that she I, stepped in for the biggest, biggest tenor in the world, Toby. I, I drank a And she nailed it. She went for it and she <laughs> did it. She pulled it off. Toby, Toby, Toby it's okay. It's okay. Stop. Listen, lay off Toby, okay? The next time that he single handedly saves the Grammy Awards, yeah. we'll give Guys, him credit. And we'll give him props. I'll let you know. Until, until then, we're going to kick you in the nuts, dude. What do you think, <laughs> man? And let, let me, let me just is, say she's not trying. She's not trying to do I know. It. I'm sorry, guys. It was just, it was an unfair criticism, <laughs> and I'm. I feel bad. Uh, seriously, though, I think Aretha Frank- Franklin, just a momentous part of music history, opera or not. And she was, you know, she was a big opera person. She did go to operas regularly. She was a big fan. And her contributions to music sort of transcend the genres in which she sang. I would say her and contributions to humanity. Yes, that as well. And I, 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 I was surprised <laughs> at good save, good save, Toby. Good save. How's that crow tasting over there, bro? (laughs) (laughs) Eating crow. (laughs) That's like a dad joke from the 1800s, George. Sorry. (laughs) Just as a, you know. Now everybody's picking on me, man. Just because I have kids doesn't mean you can pick on me. (laughs) Matt has kids, too. Matt and I saw, speaking, no, you don't. (laughs) 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 Matt and I saw Aretha in concert two summers ago. Yeah, Ravinia. Hey, Ravinia. How was it? You know, she was, what, 74 at the time, and she wailed yeah. for i mean she gave an entire performance and was just it was she awesome knew, yeah. it was to the very end she knew how to put on a show yeah. and she still had quite like quite a bit of voice left based on the kind of singing she did throughout her career like uh-huh. that's that that stuff that takes that takes a toll on you just physically after a while doing that kind of you know uh that kind of high belting and my it, favorite moment of that concert was she did go into like i don't know an 11 minute vamp sermon that was, I, I, <laughs> she was testifying. She was testifying, yeah, yeah, like legitimately. It was pretty incredible. What, what was she saying? She was talking about her health problems uh, and health about problem how being in the being in the hospital, facing death, and Jeez. and it it was the most earnest performance I think I've ever seen. Like I had no idea to expect it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how long it was going to go on. But it was just like pure human. Like it was her. Yep. All on all up on stage. That she left a, it all out. Wow. Beautiful night. Wow. 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 Uh, have any of you sung in Le Comte Ori by Rossini? Um, I, I feel like I've done some ensemble stuff from yeah, it. Yeah, I, I like to scene. The trio at the I've end never, of the I show don't think is I've ever brilliant. Seen oh I, my God, I've been trio. working on that that first so aria for a little while, but it's, it's, a, you know, it's a tricky one. Well, I was going to say, it's tough. No, it's really yeah. difficult. I mean, it's Rossini, right? Mm. And, it's and like, it was a soprano aria first, I think, because huge parts of that score are just lifted from Il Viaggio a Rem that he <laughs> wrote for, for someone's coronation. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Let's wrap the show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Man, I, I feel like it was a phenomenal show tonight. It was I don't want to jinx it. John Von Ryan. I mean, it was guess, great until like, Toby dissed Aretha Franklin. Hey, outside <laughs> of that, pretty solid show. <laughs> uh, Oliver Camacho not on the show tonight. He didn't have a good call, bad call, as far as I know. Looking at the rundown, no. Uh... Did any my here's mine? Did anybody see Carmina Barana at Grant Park? I did. I went to go see it on Friday. How was, was that? It was pretty good. I mean, they that is a piece that just wants you know like a lot of sound. I there's love not me a lot, some There's Carmina not a Barana. lot of subtlety in that uh in that Carmina Barana. Did they did they have those um <laughs> the, the, the family friendly lyrics? the family friendly <laughs> titles that we talked about on the they, show? No, they had they had translations printed yeah, in the program. Oh yeah, that's the good stuff. Actual Latin people getting down and dirty in the monastery. <laughs> I oh, saw what? I saw Carmina Barana in Ravinia a number of years ago, and I'll never forget. There was this a man in a tuxedo and a woman in a gorgeous ball gown who clearly had way too much to drink, and they stumbled out of the pavilion. Were they, were they the singers? No, no, they okay. were audience members. And this woman projectile vomited everywhere oh, in this gorgeous ball gown. Did she get it on the ball gown or just the Ravinia just, lawn? She, just the riffraff on the no, lawn. No, just it, the riffraff drinking rosé on the lawn? All, it was all the way down the ball gown. Oh, <laughs> man. 
What a great show. <laughs> Weston, you got a good call back I home. got a good call. Fall is coming. I can feel it in my bones. That pumpkin spice is coming. It's coming, guys. Tobias Wright? I have a good call. Our good friend, Math and Black, from doing the work with Math and Black, also a co-host on here several times, is going to be in town this weekend visiting from New York City. I'm excited to see my friend and colleague. Do not drink with him, whatever you do. <laughs> hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson, our announcer, Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, John Von Rhein. For Matt Cummings. For Tobias Wright and Weston Williams. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera for another 40 years. We're back on Monday, August 27th at 9 p.m. Central. More opera news, hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.